This is a sermon I've been chomping at the bit since Wednesday to preach. Okay, so like I've been dreaming about it. I've been like, so I hope, I hope it means as much to you as it does to me. And if I'm the only one that gets anything out of it, well, that'll just be, have to be what it is because I'm pretty excited. So if you get around me very long, you're going to hear the topics of value, who we are, come out of my mouth, and you're most definitely going to hear the ideas of restoration come out of my mouth. Because I believe our God is a restoring God. I believe He brings life where there was death. I believe He, he brings completely non-useful people and makes them useful again for His glory. And so I get fired up about today's subject. So, hope I don't get too excited. So here we go. Last week we looked at honor. And I really, really hope you got what I was saying. The paradigm shift that happened in my, in my heart was that too often, or actually almost all the time, we honor people for what they do. God honors us because of who we are. We should honor one another because of who we are, who we were created to be, not because we've done dishonorable things in our past. Okay, so we talked about honor. This week, uh, I want us to read our mission statement together. We're almost done walking through our mission statement. If you could throw that up there, Sydney. Here it comes right about now. The spring is dedicated to embracing Jesus Christ and one another through authentic loving relationships while building a spirit-led culture of honor where all are valued, restored, and empowered to serve. So this week, we're going to talk about value and restoration. Last week, I used this, this object lesson. Remember it? The old cooking oil, the frankincense, and the jasmine. And remember how we talked about how, you know, the cooking oil is like 11 cents an ounce, and the jasmine's like way more than that an ounce, right? So we looked at that, but I decided to come back to that this morning for a couple reasons. And the first one is this. If we were to take these three oils and we were to pour them out into a bowl equal amounts, same bowl, and I would say, okay, all the men in the room, in particular, come up here and tell me which one's more valuable, right? So if we looked at these oils, we probably say, okay, they, they probably feel the same, they probably smell a little different, but I wouldn't be able to tell which one's which, right? I wouldn't be able to say, well, that one's the expensive one, and that one's the cheap one, right? How many of you could really think you could probably do that? Maybe like one or two of you in the room, right? So I got, the, I got these two oils. From, oh, my goodness. I better not. I'm just going to let them sit there. Sorry, Jillian. Jillian just had a heart attack because she's the one that gave me these two. But so, so I get these from Jillian. But if, I, if Jillian came up, she could sniff them and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's jasmine. And, oh, yeah, that's frankincense. And jasmine is so much an ounce. And, and so we could be able to tell things like that, right? If you're experienced, if you have the correct knowledge, if you've learned to be able to see which one is accurately, you could say accurately which one is, is more expensive, all right? So, when we get to the subject of value and restoration, and we're applying that to human terms, 
I think we struggle to see the value in one another. Because oftentimes when we look at one another, we're not sure what we're looking at. Because we look at the exterior most often. Okay? We look at... um, So I'm going to talk about one of my favorite TV shows. And I've used this example before, but I love this show, and it fits perfectly. How many of you have watched American Pickers? Okay, so American Pickers is like one of my favorite things. And so um, Frankie and Mike, they go, they dig through all these buildings and, and through all these piles and heaps of junk. At least that's what it looks like to me, right? And Mikey will pull something out, and you'll hear him go, Frankie, Frankie, look what I found. You know, and he's all excited about this thing that he found. And it's covered in rust and dirt and pigeon stuff. And, you know, it's like, and so then they walk over to the guy that owns the place and he goes, I'd like, is this for sale? And they're like, yeah, we'll sell that. And he's like, uh, how about $1,500? I'm going, it's a piece of rusted junk I wouldn't give a nickel for. Well, why is he offering him 1500 bucks? Because he knows what it's worth. Despite the rust, despite the cobwebs, despite the pigeon doo-doo, he says, I know what that is worth. And he's willing to pay money for it. He's got a trained eye. He's able to spot the hidden value. We think as humans we can spot value. Right? Value meals. How many of you like value meals at McDonald's, right? Why? Because they package it all together for one price, right? It's like supposed to be a better deal. And it is by like 10 cents, you know? Why do people have memberships at BJ's? Because they can go buy the 6,000 pack of toilet tissue and save 20 cents a roll, right? And we buy in bulk. It's value. We think that's what it is. You know what? Do you know where I buy clothes? The clearance rack at Kohl's. Right? Okay, so everybody see the shirt I'm wearing? New shirt. Right? Everybody like it? So who's going to guess what the retail value of this shirt is? Give me some ideas. 70, 36, 60, 45, 90. You work there. He's pretty close. Okay. So here's the deal. It, it It was like 50 bucks retail. It was on the clearance rack, and they'd marked it down multiple times. And Sandy had a coupon, and I got this shirt for $2.49. I'm like, now that's a bargain, right? (laughs) I love deals like that. You know, it's so bad in our house that one time I heard two of my boys sitting there, and they were looking at the, the toy catalogs for Christmas, I think. And I heard one of them go, man, I'd love to have that. And the other one said, I will never get that. Dad doesn't buy anything unless it's on clearance. (laughs) Right? But we value things, you know, we, we look for good deals, all right? One of, the things, one of the things that drives me nuts about my dad is he'll go to a yard sale and he'll buy a box of, of screwdrivers, you know, like 50 of them in there for five bucks. And he'll go, man, look at this deal I got. And I'm like, dad, you already have 100 screwdrivers. <laughs> what, what do you need another box of screwdrivers for? But I got them for five bucks, right? So I think we see value. We, we picture value different ways. We, we look at value uh, different ways. I see it as a waste. My dad sees it as a great deal. One of the things that strikes me about American pickers is they'll look at something, and they're not just looking to see that that item is rare 
or that it, it's, it's valuable just because what it is. A lot of times they'll look at it because they determine whether or not it's valuable enough to restore. Like put in the right hands, could we put this in an expert's hands and he could do what he needs to do to it to bring it back to life and make it useful again? I think sometimes in today's society, we just throw things out. We're a microwave society. We're a, we're a, if it breaks, we'll just get another one society. But I don't think God plays that game with human beings. This morning, I'd like us to look at a pretty familiar story. I know we've, we've looked at this story before, and it's one you're absolutely positively going to be familiar with. And let me give us a little bit of the story here. There was, there was a Levite's wife, and her name was Jochebed, and she gave birth to a son. But at that time, there was an evil pharaoh who wanted all the little boys killed, all the little Hebrew boys killed. And so this little boy's mama tried to save him. And so she put him in, in a basket, and she went down to the Nile River, and she put him in the bulrushes to hide him there. And he floated down the river a little ways. And wouldn't you know it, the Pharaoh's daughter finds this little boy. And pulls him out. And decides to raise this little boy as her own. Of course, you know this boy's name, right? Moses. If we look at the life of Moses, we can, we can break it down into very specific segments of his life. Moses growing up, you could look at his early life, being raised in the palace. He had the best of the best. He was in the lap of luxury. He had anything he wanted. He had the best rulers, uh, the best scholars to teach him. By the time Moses was a young adult, he was a well-educated, rich, handsome, have-anything-that-he-wants man. Oh, how life changes. I think sometimes we could look at people of that age could have looked at Moses and said, now there's a valuable guy. You know what? We're starting a new, uh, starting a new internet company and that's the man we want to run it. That Moses dude, he's got a lot going, right? Don't we look at people that way? We value people that way, right? I mean, we all looked at my shirt and said, well, $50 shirt. No. It's a $2.49 shirt. Did it change the value of this shirt? No. It's still the same shirt. But we look at rich people, or we look at, we look at people that seem like they have it all together, and we, somehow we assign a different value to different classes of people sometimes. You, you get what I'm saying? And so if we looked at Moses' early life, we would say, you know what, this is a pretty valuable dude. But then something happened. Somewhere along the way, and Scripture doesn't tell us clearly, but at some point in Moses' growing up, he found out that he was Hebrew. Now, his mother could have told him because his mother, raised, his mother took care of him in the palace. Um, the Pharaoh's daughter might have told him. God might have told him. Um, it could have been a, a well-known fact. I mean, everybody could have just known. He was a Hebrew boy being raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know exactly how... Moses found out. But when we get to the next part of our story, we know that Moses knew he was Hebrew. 
And one day he was out and about, and he witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he decided to intervene. And he stepped in, and guess what he did? He killed that Egyptian. And he buried that body in the sand, thinking that no one saw him. But guess what? People saw him. And the very next day, Moses found out that people saw him. And not long after that, he knew that Pharaoh knew about him murdering an Egyptian. And the Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses. And guess what Moses did? He ran. He headed for the wilderness. He left the palace. He left all of his riches behind. He headed off this rich, powerful man that the world probably viewed as something valuable in a moment of rage made a huge mistake. And in an instant, Moses lost it all. So the story goes on, and there's, there's a moment in the story where the Bible says Moses sits down beside a well. And I kind of try to imagine what happens. When I read Scripture, when I read stories, I like to kind of read between the, the lines a little bit. And I, what's, what's really happening here? What, what's Moses thinking about? Could you imagine what he might have been thinking about? How could I have been so stupid? Why did I do that? Why didn't I have control over myself? Man, I lost everything. I'll never be the same. What am I going to do? I'm in a land where I don't know anybody. I'll never amount to anything. How many of you have ever looked in the mirror and asked those same questions? How many of you have ever heard other people say those things about you? I have. Twenty-some years ago, a family member of mine looked at my life and said this, Steve's made too many stupid mistakes. He'll never amount to anything. A family member. It's easy to look around. It's easy to look in the mirror. To look at our own mistakes, our own actions, and to say the same exact thing. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I will never amount to anything. Thank goodness the story of Moses doesn't end there. There's something really, really important that happens in the next chapter of Exodus. When we get to the next chapter of Exodus, Moses had married a Midianite girl. She was work- he was working for her father as a shepherd. Tradition tells us that 40 years passed. 40 years. This once powerful, wealthy man spent his days and nights in the company of stinky, dumb sheep out in the wilderness. Most people would call that a fall from grace. So this morning, I'd like us to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3. 
verses 1 through 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. So you see the picture. Moses is out. He's tending the sheep. He looks off in the distance and sees something that's not that uncommon of a sight in that area. He sees a bush that's on fire. But the uncommon thing is it's on fire, but it's not burning up. I love how he simply says, hmm, I think I'll go over there and see that strange sight. <laughs> Just kind of the humanness of Moses here. You know, that's, well, that's different. Never saw that before. I think I'll go check it out. So Moses was curious. Verses 4 through 6 says this. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Moses heads off to look at this strange sight, this bush that isn't burning up. And when he gets to the bush, it gets a lot stranger because the bush talks to him. Now, I don't know about you, but that happens to me. I'm probably not sticking around. Am I the only one in here that's a scaredy cat? <laughs> a bush that's on fire talking to me? I'm out of there, right? Strange got stranger. The interesting thing is the bush wasn't just on fire, but the bush knew his name. It's kind of weird. Again, reading between the lines, did Moses recognize the voice? Was there a familiarity in the Moses, Moses coming from the bush? Was there a relationship there that he knew who was calling his name? Maybe. Was there something about that voice that drew Moses closer? Something else strikes me. When God identifies himself, what did Moses do? Hit his face. He hit the ground. He might have been terrified. He might have had all of those years of shame and guilt because of what he did back in Egypt all of a sudden came washing over him. And now he's in the presence of God and he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> did he call me over here to hit me with a lightning bolt? Did he call me over here to end it? Did he call me over here to punish me? And he hit his face. I got to wonder if he wasn't a little scared perhaps. See, I'm pretty sure, at least I would think, at some point Moses had cried out to God and repented of what he did and asked for forgiveness. But maybe Moses didn't quite think God had forgiven him. He might have been truly afraid. But what happens next is amazing to me. God doesn't mention any of it. God says, I've heard the cries of the Israelites and I've got a plan to free them. In verse 10, we see this. So now go, I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh 
to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So get it. Moses is laying on the ground. He's got his face hidden. The, the fire's burning and God's talking. And Moses is kind of scared. And God says, all right, Moses, I'm sending you to free the Israelites. I kind of see Moses going, wait, what? You're sending me to do what? You're kidding, right? For sure he was looking back at his past. For sure he was looking at his weaknesses. For sure he was seeing his shame and guilt and his brokenness and feeling worthless. Not very usable. Verses 11 through 14. Got 11 through 14? Okay, here, I'll read it. Moses said to God, Who am I? Oops, go away. Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are say to the, what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Through these verses, Moses asks two really important questions. He says, who am I? And he says, who is it that sent me? Who do I tell them who sent me? And God's answers are really powerful. And I think they apply to us in a very significant way. When Moses said, who am I? God didn't tell Moses who he was. You get it? This is really important. I'll repeat it. Elbow your neighbor. Make sure they're awake. Listen, this is really important. When Moses said, who am I? God didn't tell him who, Mo- who he was. When Moses said, who am I? God said, I am with you. You see the significance in that. It didn't matter who Moses was. It mattered that God was with him. It didn't matter what Moses had done. It mattered that God was with him. It didn't matter what Moses could do. It mattered that God was with him. You guys getting this? It doesn't matter what our accomplishments are. It doesn't matter what our resume is. It doesn't matter what our failures are. God is with us. Our constant companion. Talk about name dropping. Right? Have you ever been around somebody that name drops? You can walk around now and say, I'm with God. He and I are like this. We're tight. Right? He's with us. There's power that comes with that. There's freedom that comes with that. How valuable does that make you feel? And then Moses said, who do I tell him sent me? God says, I am who I am. What's that mean? It means God was saying, I am the true God. I am the only God. He was also saying, I am God and you are not. How many of you try to be God? 
So we went to see the movie Sh- The Shack last night, and regardless of your of the theology or the whatever about it, there's people all in uproar about it. I say, relax. Look and see what the movie's really saying. Okay? But at one point in the movie, they're, they're questioning the, the main character, and this main character's trying to judge all these people for well, the things that they did wrong, and he had judged himself for all the things that he had d- done wrong. And God says to this man, what, you're the judge now? Well, here, come sit up here on this throne and judge. How often do we play God? How often do we think I'm God? Right? I'm God. I'm going to judge who, who gets in and who gets out. Right? I'm going to pass judgment on you because I'm God. No, we don't say that. None of us think we're God. But we act like it. God was telling Moses he could go and free the Israelites because God is God. And because he is with Moses... It didn't matter about his past. It didn't matter about his deeds. It mattered that God was God. And God was with him. Listen, here's something really, really important. Restoration. So I believe at this moment in Moses' life, God was in the restoration process. He was ready to restore Moses. He was ready to to return him to a powerful influential position because it was god doing it not moses but here's the deal one of the things we need to remember sometimes restoration can be inhibited by the fact that we hang on hear me this is going to sound weird but i think this is truth sometimes when we have pain from our past Sometimes when we have shame from our past, sometimes when we have unforgiveness from our past, we know that we shouldn't hold on to all of those things, but we do anyways. Why? Because they're, they're what we know. We get comfortable with the pain. We get comfortable with the shame. It, it's, it's who we are, and it's kind of our identity. And to give that up means I'm, I'm giving it up for an unknown. I don't know what it feels like to not be in pain anymore. I don't know what it feels like to not be ashamed of, of my life before. I don't know what it feels like to have a forgiving heart because I've harbored unforgiveness for so long. And so we hang on to it. And even though in our heads we know that God can heal us of all of that, we still hang on to it. It becomes who we are. It hurts, yes, but at least we feel something. And somehow, in some strange and twisted way, shame, guilt, and pain become comfort to us. Am I speaking to anybody in the room? Or am I looking in the mirror and just talking to myself? Because this is, this is me. This is my story. Shame, pain, unforgiveness, guilt. That was my identity for years. And it was comfortable. I didn't want to give it up. Moses likely had been comfortable with his shame over all those years. But God in two short statements proved that it does not matter who I am. It matters who He is. 
We who choose to follow Jesus, when we repent, we turn our faces toward Him. We are no longer identified by the past. We become identified with Him, with Jesus. What seems impossible by human standards is possible because God is God. Moses, who by the world's standards had reached a point in his life where he was not very valuable. He was broken, he was tarnished, he was a simple old sheep herder. Was actually seen as valuable in God's eyes. Valuable enough to give a a very important task to. Here's the deal. Never underestimate the restorative powers of God's presence in your life. Ever. I love to say this. This is like one of my theme things that I say. God is the absolute master of taking what was once broken, restoring it, and using it for His glory. He is the master. It's true in my life. When I turned my life to God, when I finally surrendered my life to God, my life was in pieces. And I did not expect God to really do anything with it. Because I couldn't see what God could see. One last thing I want to point out. (laughs) The process of restoration might look different than you expect. I'm pretty sure Moses, in his wildest dreams, never thought God was going to ask him to do what he asked him to do. When God restores us to use us, he might restore us to something that we really don't recognize. You have no idea how many times I've come in this building and gone in that office or stood up here in front of you guys and gone, you know what, God? It sure isn't what I expected. 20 years ago, when you started the restoration process, not my wildest dreams could I have imagined this. There's no way. Something very important we need to remember. The sinful, broken you wasn't the you that God intended when He created you. When you look at the broken things in your life, you need to remember when God formed you in your mother's womb, that was not His intention for you. And so when we surrender to Him and allow Him to restore us back to what He intended, we probably look way different than what we expected. And that's okay. That's okay. Do you see yourself through that eye? Do you see yourself as valuable enough to restore? Because I promise you, if God was Mikey from American Pickers, when he picked you up out of the junk heap, I guarantee you he's going, Frankie! 
Look what I found. I'm going to restore this boy. I'm going to restore this girl. And you just wait and see how I use them. So I got to ask. Anybody looking for some restoration? Anyone feeling a little rusty? A little grimy? Are you holding on to shame, pain, or guilt because you're comfortable with it now? There is no day like today to find freedom. I am inviting you this morning to search your hearts. And if you want to fall on your knees this morning and say, God, take the pieces of my life and do something with them. You come. There will be people who will pray with you. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to come if you want to come. Let's talk and let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the examples of restoration that are in Scripture and the examples of restoration that are in my very own life and the people around me. Father God, I know that you see me and you see us through eyes that are so different than the way we see. But this morning, Lord, I'm asking to see through your eyes. <laughs> Let me see myself. Let me see the people in this room. Let me see the community around me through your eyes. Not the dirt, not the rust, not the grime, but the way you created them to be in the beginning. The intention of your creation, Lord, I pray that we would walk into that. Change us, Lord. Restore us, Lord. Use us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation is to come and pray if you want to pray. Have a great Sunday. If not, we'll see you Wednesday night.